The Apostle John got a message while he was on the island of Patmos. Jesus, well, basically began to evaluate seven local churches. The first one Jesus talked about was the church at Ephesus. If you've been with us for a while, we closed Paul's letter to that very church last week. In Ephesians, Paul reframed the church for us. He clarified and described this amazing community. You stop, and the, the church, it's wonderful, it's amazing. It's something that's alive. Maybe that's not your experience. Maybe your church is filled with disunity and disharmony. Maybe there's parts of this church that you're discouraged about. But Paul's description is really amazing. The first three chapters, he just focuses on How much God has dumped the grace truck on every one of us. How much he loved us. How much he pursued us. How much he ran after each one of us. So that we might be able to experience abundant life and eternal life. Jesus died in your place and in my place to pay the debt for my sin so that I might, well, have a relationship with God. Then in the last three chapters in Ephesians, he begins to describe what it looks like when a church walks with God and and how important it is that the Spirit controls us because the Spirit is what chips away all the things that just don't reflect God very well at all. So, well, I can say Paul was jacked about the church. He loved the church. He loved when the body came together and praised and worshipped and served. This was exciting. And out of all the churches that Paul had a relationship with, (laughs) Ephesians. Well, I I don't know if it's his favorite, but I'm going to say it's pretty close. He stayed there the longest. He had the deepest relationships. And he flat out loved this church. But something happened since last week. Last week when we ended in chapter 6. The church kept going on. It was flourishing at that moment. But 33 years move forward. 33 years later... John, one of the apostles, was exiled by the Roman emperor Domitian to the island of Patmos as a punishment. Tradition tells us that the emperor literally had John boiled in oil, but he survived. We're not sure that happened, but whoa, if it did... Nevertheless, John is exiled to Patmos, and he writes a letter after receiving a vision. And this letter is to the seven churches 
in Asia or present-day Turkey. He writes this about 95 A.D. The climate was harsh. Christians were suffering. The Roman Empire at this time was suffocating. Revelation is quite the book. And if you would, you can turn your flat screens and your Bibles to Revelation. We will eventually get there, I promise. But when I mention the book Revelation, if you've been part of the church or you've been a God follower for a while, you're like, oh, I I don't read that book that often. Or it, it seems a little bit too hard to understand. Well, before we jump into chapter two, it's going to be important for us to know what Revelation is and what it isn't. I grew up in a generation of believers that focused purely on the future dynamic of Revelation. It was, veiled for te- it was a veiled foretelling of the future with little emphasis on the first century or today. But most of you know that there's always two steps in hermeneutics or two steps in understanding the Bible. Step number one is, what did it mean to the original hearers? When John wrote this book, what did the signs mean? What did the imagery portray? And then lastly, once you understand that, what does it mean to us? How does it apply to us? What are the truths that will leap out, that will jump out? Wow. Although there will be glimpses of what will happen in the days to come, this letter was sent primarily to encourage and confront seven local churches. It was a daring proclamation that Jesus is God, the world's true emperor, not somebody from Rome. It is a wild and creative portrayal of a battle between the beastly and horrific Roman Empire and the good kingdom of God, ruled by a lamb. The message is clear. The hideous present monster of Rome and all the other future monsters will battle a little lamb. And what's so cool is they will be conquered. They will lose. Much of the language in Revelation is symbolic. It's apocryphal. But it doesn't exactly fit the genre. Something that was so clear in 95 AD, shall I say, is a little less clear today. For example, you all would know exactly what a donkey and an elephant with boxing gloves would mean today. While if we showed that same cartoon in 95 AD, I'm pretty sure they'd scratch our head. (laughs) Well, what is this all about? Revelation proclaims that Jesus our King wins and will end all of the evil, violent empires. The Lamb of God comes as a good king, but he also comes as a just king, which just simply means our king brings hope sprinkled 
with judgment. Although this isn't a new study, and although we're not jumping into the book of Revelation, or digging into all seven churches, we are going to be looking at the church at Ephesus 33 years later. We must all study this book with humility, seeking to balance careful reading, listening, restrained and reasonable interpretation, and practical application that will keep us from being extreme and miss out the meaning of the book. So if you would, you can follow along on the screen behind me, or you can open up your Bibles, but I'm going to start off reading from Revelation chapter 1, the first four verses. This is the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the events that must soon take place. He sent an angel to present this revelation to his servant John who is faithfully reporting everything he saw. This is his report of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Not again that the, any part of the Bible needs any introduction, but, but John was really clear. This is coming from Jesus. These are Jesus' words, and this is what Jesus wants these churches to hear. So at least for me, I, I get a little more excited. Verse 3. God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy into the church. And he blesses all who listen to its message and obey what it says, for the time is near. This letter is from John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. God starts off right in the beginning and says that he will bless everyone who reads Revelation. Everybody who listens and obeys. This is not something new. It's all the way through the Old Testament and the New Testament. God very faithfully says this, I've sent you a love letter. And every word in this love letter is critical. What I want you to do is spend time in it. I want you to listen. I want you not only to hear, but I want you to obey. Obey. Because if you do, if you obey, oh, I will bless you. Now, God doesn't bless with cars and mansions, vacations, large bank accounts. Now, maybe you have those, and that's awesome. But really, when God talks about his blessing, he talks about those who walk with him in spite of the circumstances can enjoy his presence. And it's his presence that allows us to live in the mess, in our world, in the confusion. That's what God blesses. He says, I, I'm going to be with you as you do life. So today, let's allow his words to pierce the veils of our own hearts, to fortify our strengths and correct our flaws. Let me pray. Father, we ask you to be our teacher today. Lord, in so many ways, we 
We get busy. We sometimes forget to open your book. We sometimes, in our schedules, forget to thank you for health and strength. But mostly thank you for your presence as we get lousy doctor reports or as bosses tell us things we don't like to hear or as relationships seem to be breaking up. God, we need you. We love you. And we ask you just open our eyes today. Would you teach us would you encourage us? Would you convict us? Would your Holy Spirit so be absolutely active? Would there be no one, Father, that steps out of this room the same because they met with you? Lord, we know there's so many churches, not only in this neighborhood or in this county or in this state, but all over America, all over our world, that well, they're worshiping you. They're meeting to hear from you. We pray, Lord, that you would supernaturally empower your church today, that it would be salt and light, and that we would be ruthlessly confessing our sin and trusting you in all we do and all we say. We pray this in particular for Crosspoint, but we ask for all those who follow you, Father. Change them. Change our world. And would your kingdom come. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Turn to chapter 2, and I'm going to start reading verse 1 all the way through verse 6. Revelation 2. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. I know all the things you do, church at Ephesus. I added that part. I have seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles, but they are not. You have discovered they are liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. But, but, and, and we're going to come back to this verse. But this is a critical verse. But, I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did in first. Look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. But this is in your favor. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans, just as I do. This is a message for the church at Ephesus, a thriving church. A church that was hidden on all eight cylinders at least 33 years before. And just like people, churches go through decades. Sometimes churches stay on course. Sometimes churches go off course, just like people. 
But Jesus is evaluating. And literally, he's given a message for the church at Ephesus and given it to their pastor. I say, wait a minute, Rick, that's not there. But, but we should understand that when Jesus told John to write his messages to each of the angels of the seven church, he referred to what we call today the pastors of those churches. Men with whom God probably, or, or that John probably was familiar When you read the word, that specific word in Greek, you normally determine what it means, either heavenly being or an earthly messenger, by the context. Paul founded, just a reminder, this church at Ephesus about 52 AD. Then he appointed the first pastor after him, well, it was Timothy, at about 65 AD. So imagine you plant your church, Paul's your first pastor. The second one, Timothy. Whoa, this church is, this is a great church, you know. Timothy then probably was followed up by John. Oh, man. We were talking about heavy hitters here. Hey, what church you go to? I go to Ephesus. Yeah, you know, Apostle Paul was our first pastor. Yeah, yeah, and you know, Timothy after him, and John now, whoa, yeah, that's our church. Well, at the time of the visions of the book of uh, Revelation, John was exiled to Patmos. Tradition tells us that Onesimus was probably the man that took over, the pastor. Now, Onesimus, Think about if that was true. Not sure if you remember that name, but if you're familiar with the book of Philemon, Onesimus was one of Philemon's slaves who ran away, broke the law, somehow got connected with the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul led him to faith, sent him back to Philemon as a new creation. Philemon graced him. How cool is that if Onesimus really was the pastor after a life like that? Okay, that's a side note. But interesting, as we look at this text, God paints a picture. He says he holds the seven pastors in his hand. Right at the end of chapter 1, there's a little bit, again, we're talking about stars and lampsticks and, or lampstands and so on. But up in the last verse of chapter 1, he says, those stars, those angels, are the angels or the messengers of the churches. And he said, the lampstands are the church. Isn't it interesting that he uses a lampstand to symbolize the church? Maybe the purpose of the church. To be light in a community. To bring hope. I loved it. John's description communicates that Jesus Christ knows everything about these churches. Christ doesn't merely stand in the midst of the churches. Rather, he walks among them. 
He examines them from every angle. No praiseworthy quality or embarrassing imperfection can escape his notice. He is aware of every thought, intention, and motive, caring enough for their well-being that he is going to give them a message of encouragement and also willing to correct them. After a thorough examination of the pastor slash church, Jesus gives a report card. Whoa. The mere saying report card bothers me. You know, you may call it a performance review now that you're older. But we've been getting performance reviews since I've been in, you know, third grade. And they weren't always that good. You know what I mean? I'm like, oh, you really have to improve here and, and this, and this skill isn't, you know, that hot. And how about if we spend a little time over here? So, yeah, of course, report cards, they weren't so good. Now, some of you are going, <laughs> Mine were, well, goody, goody for you. But all I know is that any time that happens, you, you know, all of us get a little bit of a knot in our stomach. Did I progress well? What's the mark? What's the teacher going to say? And if it's Jesus, folks, it's not like you can argue. Okay, oh, Jesus, I'm, I'm not so, No. He gives a report card. What does he notice about Ephesus? This is actually pretty cool. First of all, he says, in the line that says, are you a hard worker? Boom, check. Good job. You guys work hard. I have this picture of teams accomplishing much together. They start projects and they finish projects. Oh, that is awesome. And then the next one says, uh, do you patiently endure? Yes! This is a great church here. Life and ministry is hard. The battle is fierce at times, and we saw that especially last week in our last lesson from Ephesians. But the enemy is relentless and ruthless. So you know what? These are difficult times. But you know what? You patiently endure. Your faith in God is strong. This is good. And then he goes on and goes, you do not tolerate evil people. They're discerning. They take action. They protect the flock. They know that they're perpetrators. Specifically, later on in verse 6, he mentions the Nicolaitans. And honestly, there's not a lot about these people, but most scholars that I read will say that they're a group of false teachers active in Ephesus. So they kind of look like they're God followers, but they're not. Their practices relate to the participation in idolatry, and they kind of mixed some of the, well, Roman religion with following Jesus. Regardless of who the Nicolaitans were, it's important to note that Christ has not only said he hated their deeds, but he also praised the church 
in Ephesus for hating their deeds. You know, this is a tough time to be a Christian, I think. Because really, if we made that a very practical application, our world is drowning in a culture and being blind and tolerating sin all around us. But really what Jesus was saying is saying, you guys at Ephesus, you love the sinner, but you hate the sin well. Wow, that's almost a constant prayer for us. How, how do we do that? How do we love those that hate God and hate what they do? Then lastly, in this positive kind of venue, they have suffered for wearing the Jesus jersey, and they have not quit. This implies endurance under extreme hardship in the face of life-threatening challenges or against almost impossible odds. The Ephesian Christians face spiritual challenges, but they refuse to bow their knee to the goddess Diana or the images of the emperor. And they found themselves maligned and slandered and boycotted and abused. They were tossed in prison. And apparently some were boiled in oil. If someone came to me and said, Rick, I, I hear you're one of the pastors over at Crossway. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, you know what? I've, I've heard about your church. Yeah, they are hard workers. And he goes through this whole list. You know? They persevere. They know how to love people really well, the sinners, but hate the sin. And they suffer. I've heard some of them lose their jobs. I've heard some of them not, and I said, wow, isn't that amazing church? Why don't you come on out? Let's get together. Let's have some coffee. Let's see if this might be a great place for you to be part of our community. It's not the whole picture because there's a but, an ugly but. Verse 4, but... I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or others as you did in the beginning. Whoa. I mean, can't you just focus on that other part, like the top part of the report card, God? No, because this is really important. You don't love me like you used to. Hmm. Some of us have some long-term relationships. Some of us have gone through hard ones and they've broken up, but it's amazing sometimes when you sit down with couples who are 15 years married, 20 years, or 25, or 30, or 40 years. The tendency after that long for the most part, is to roll your eyes, not have your eyes dance. 
is to not allow certain idiosyncrasies to be set aside, but to nitpick on them. Oftentimes you'll see some couples sit at a restaurant and the whole meal say six words to each other. Now my guess is, no matter where they were at, if you go back to their courting days, you go back when they first set eyes on each other. Oh my word! The eyes danced! Anything, you were talking and talking. You were calling on the phone. You were texting. Maybe it wasn't texting back then. or It didn't matter. You would spend hours with them. It wouldn't matter if it was late. It didn't even matter if you had work. The next day, you'd go to tired. You'd go to, to work tired. It just didn't matter. I remember one time, I was just absolutely in love with my wife. Most of the time. <laughs> when we were courting. And there was this one time, I don't even remember, but my dad took the car away. I lived like in a car 50 minutes away from Sharon's house. Didn't matter to me. I was quite stubborn and also in love. Got on a bike. <laughs> rode all the way. Just about died by the time he got there. Spent some time. It was just so worth it and rode all the way home. So I'm, I don't know, four hours on a bike and spent time with her for an hour. It was a great day. Who would do that? She gives me a call now. Hey, Rick, can you come pick me up? Well, how far is it? (laughs) I'm a little busy right now. Don't you understand? I'm a pastor. (laughs) Not true, completely. But isn't that how it goes? We just automatically just kind of hang out with someone. This is exactly what Jesus was saying. You don't love me like you did. Do you remember, and some of you might remember this, when you first came to faith, when you recognized the gospel, when you couldn't believe that someone would die in your place in order to give you abundant and eternal life, you opened up this word and you read it. Maybe that first year you read it once through the whole Bible. Maybe two times. Four times, six times. You couldn't put this thing down. You started talking. You started letting people know, do you know that God does this? You believe this and 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 there's excitement. Now, I am not saying that everyone will always stay that excited about their spouses and about God. But there is something that's radically different for the most part of those days when we fell in love and right now. For the Ephesian church, 33 years. And then he goes on, not only me, but you just don't love others like you used to. You used to encourage others. People's faults didn't make that much of a deal. You used to care for people even when, well, they didn't show their appreciation. You don't do that anymore. You don't do it. 
You see, losing your first love for God and people doesn't happen overnight. It took 33 years for this absolutely dynamic church with unbelievable leadership to fall away. In fact, if you go back in Ephesians chapter 1, one of the things that Paul writes is in verse 15 and 16, I am so grateful for how much you love God. Your reputation is all over. So he gives us a remedy. He says, you, you don't love like you used to. But here's, here's a chance. Here's a chance to have a course correction. Here's something that's really, really critical. And what I said, here's the remedy. I put it in three R's. The first one, remember. Remember how far you've fallen. Remember what it was like. Remember when your priority was me. And it wasn't a job. And it wasn't. And you fill in the blank. But your priority literally was me. Remember that. He said, secondly, you need to repent. I think the Christian life is a continual series of repentance. I think, again, God brings arrogance to us and brings all kinds of different sins and attitudes, and and we repent as we walk with Him because we want to please Him. But I think what he's asking here, I I want you to repent of your laziness. I want you to repent of your focus on comfort, on your poor management of time and priorities. Just remember this, is nobody ever drifts into a good relationship. I, I just want you to know that. It doesn't just happen casually. Every good relationship you have right now, it's because you have put an effort into it. And it's not any different with Jesus. The difference with our earthly ones is there's always two people. And and you could be doing your part and the other one may not. But with God, he's always there. He's always pursuing. He's desiring this. And the third part of the remedy, redo the works you did at first. Let me just put it bluntly. Spend the time and make the effort. Spend the time and make the effort. What's really sad, he finishes up. He says, if you don't, If you just continue on your path, if you just are like hard workers and have faith in God but are not nurturing your relationship, if you're not connecting with me, there will be consequences. Because I don't care how much you do, and I don't care... Whoa, 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 wait. He doesn't. He cares about being intimate with you and me. So there will be consequences if you don't respond. I will remove your lampstand. You'll go dark. You will no longer be a light. Do you fear that? 
Does that bother you? That God gives you and me an opportunity to be light in this world? Would that bother you that as a church, Crosspoint Church, that he might take our light away? If all we are is a church that does and does, <laughs> not even a word, but I'm, I'm using it. It's just all about performance instead of intimacy. You see, I'm so convinced that as you become intimate with God, there's going to be great action that follows. No doubt about it. But sometimes when you're in a relationship for a long time, all the things you did with the right motives just keep happening. But there's no fire in your bones. Do you understand how serious this is? Do, do you understand how sobering this is? In other words, as you walk with God longer, you should become more and more and more passionate. You should become more and more obedient. You should become more and more involved with others. You should have a connection with God. You shouldn't get more and more comfortable. You shouldn't get more and more lazy. This place and others shouldn't become less and less a priority. If it is, you're losing your first love. Then he ends up in verse 7, chapter 2, verse 7 as we close up. Anyone who has ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what He is saying to these churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. Great imagery. If you have ears, duh. <laughs> Most of us have ears. All he's saying is, listen. I, I, I've come to you. There is a severe issue here. You're looking so good on the outside, but you're not intimate with me anymore. Change it. Repent it. Redo the things that I've asked you to do, that you do out of love. Is God saying this again to our church, to us? And if you do, if you do listen, you're going to experience the fruit. Sometimes we look in your translations, it's, it's overcomers or those who overcome. And, and really, in, in 1 John chapter 5, the apostle again defines that. Everyone who puts their faith in Jesus is an overcomer. Everyone who is part of God's family has overcome the sin that separated them. <laughs> this is great promise. Here's a chance. A chance for you. A chance for me to reboot. I don't know where you're at in your relationship with God. I don't. I know where I'm at. I know where I need to grow. I know what I need to repent of. 
I recognize that sometimes I'm more important than my Savior. What's got to change? Why is it so hard to get up on a Sunday to worship with our community? Why every Wednesday do you sort of have a little headache when Awana comes around and you're a sparky leader? Why? How come when this study happens at 6 a.m., you are the most tired out of every day in the week? How come when you want to get up 15 minutes early and just open up the Word and say, Father, teach me, that it hardly happens? But back, back when you first knew Jesus, (laughs) you couldn't wait. Repent. Take it seriously. Because although our God is a loving God, an amazing God, He also is a God that says, you know what? I've faithfully encouraged you to connect. I'm done. I've given your church. I'm given your... I'm done. They're playing games, and I'm done. So, Rick, I don't like hearing that. Actually, I don't like reading that message. That's not fun for me. But I actually think he means it. There's great promise, and we've given great hope. What a glorious future we look forward to enriching fellowship, intimacy with the Almighty enduring love when we eventually shut our eyes. All those that know Jesus, they will see Jesus. And it will all make sense. Let's pray. Father, why is it that our stuff gets the priority. Why is it, God, after all you've done for us, that after years we just do and perform rather than grow more and more intimate? We are sometimes more concerned about our physical bodies or about our bank accounts or about what we look like to others than our time with you. Lord, this was an amazing church. They had all the right leaders. They probably had the best teachers that anybody could have. And and yet, God, they failed. They forgot you. Lord, we don't want to do that. We don't want to go through the motions. Change our hearts. Change our perspective.
Will we see your word as a love letter? Would we, Father, respond to you and make you the priority? Would we listen? Would we open your word and obey? Would we repent when we have sin? Would we do that, Father? And would you give our light fuel? Would we please you? Would we serve because of our love for you? And would your kingdom come? We pray this in your son's name. Amen.